Welcome to another podcast of Tell Me More. Uh, I'm Ryan Chandler. I'm the brand new Minister of Young Adults and Young Families. That's a wide range here. This is my first podcast that I get to do (laughs) with Dr. Wiles. Uh, Some of our other staff that normally do this are at a conference, and they're learning more about how to lead our church in terms of mission, so we're happy that they are there doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But that gives me the honor of getting to sit with Dr. Wiles and talk to him about See, his sermon. They didn't. They didn't trust me to do this by myself, Ryan. See, I did that one time. I flew solo, and it was it was such a flop that they were like, I even offered that up. I said I could do solo, and they were like, uh, "What about Ryan?" I, I'm <laughs> so more than welcome. happy. I've got a face for radio, so that's good. <laughs> and uh, and we are glad to have you. By the way. Welcome, Ryan Chandler, to First Baptist Arlington, and for all you Arlington folks, um, you are you're going to love getting to know Ryan and Amy and their children, and uh, we're really proud of you. Glad to have you. Looking forward to the future. Thank you, my brother. <clears throat> Thank you. I have a question to open with that's fun. Mm-hmm. So, um, for those of you who don't know, I was a senior pastor for a little bit, and so I uh, spent a good amount of time writing sermons. Whenever I wrote my sermons. I did so much research on the cultural backgrounds of interesting facts and things happening in the cities in which these events are taking place. Mm -hmm. I had to leave a lot of that out. Mm -hmm. I couldn't bring all of that in. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask, what are some things that maybe you left out (laughs) of this sermon or sermon series that if you had more time just to talk about um, Acts and the early church and what's happening here— Uh, what else might you have said? You know, that's, and that's the reason we do this. You know, there's just so much, as you know. I mean, exploring the whole dynamic of the culture and religious milieu of the first century, particularly in Israel, um, is always fascinating to me. Um, You know, N.T. Wright has given his life almost to the Second Temple era, as he calls it. And guys like Todd Steele, who you know well, uh, Todd's dean at Truett Seminary. Um, the, these some of these scholars they live in the intertestamental period in the first century, mm-hmm. and that's just where they put so much of their time and energy. and And there's so much to unpack there that is the context for the gospel being birthed, really, and being proclaimed as it was. But you just don't have time to explain all of these different um, arguments, theological disagreements. You know, we read um, somewhat. Um, quickly in the scripture, you know, you've got the Sanhedrin and you've got the Sadducees and you've got the Pharisees and you've got the, um, you know, you have this little quick mention of the Zealots and the Herodians. Well, who are all these people? Well, you know, when you live in our world, like you've lived in, you spend a lot of time unpacking all that, you know, but but um, to take the time. So think about the setting in first century Israel in Jerusalem, who all is there and why are they there and what are they hoping is going to happened there because they saw that as kind of the future capital of the world, so to speak. And so you've got these these clashing um, viewpoints and perspectives and messianic expectations or um, or people who have grown comfortable like the Sadducees, you know, you don't don't upset my apple cart. We've made peace with the Romans. We're the priestly class. We, you know, we're good. <laughs> we live in fine homes. <laughs> we have our guards and all that. And um and yet they were Jews. And so if you were to push them, at some point, they're going to bleed Messiah, if you can if you can get them to that point. 
and then but you've got the zealots, you know, who are ready to overthrow this thing. So you've got this complex, theologically rich environment that, you know, I just it's hard to take the time to do all of that when you're trying to take the scripture and, and make it applicable to people's lives. So mm-hmm. I think it's I think where where the not frustration, that's not the right word, where the tension is for someone like me. I don't know that it's true for everybody, but someone like me. To me, there's a difference between teaching and preaching. Um, my my favorite line about that is teaching is pouring it on and preaching is rubbing it in, so to speak. Mm. And um, but I think that there are there are a lot of teachers who are not preachers. Mm. I, I don't know that there. I think there are fewer preachers who aren't teachers. I think that they the preaching gift to me usually has a connectivity with teaching, but they are two different things. And so the tension that I face on Sunday morning is. I have this gene in me that wants to teach and contextualize and, uh, you know, unpack and and create dilemmas, you know, to invite you into the dilemma of trying to understand what's going on here. But the preaching gene takes over on Sunday morning <laughs> because <laughs> you want to quickly get to an explanation of the text and an application of the text and open windows in the text. And so it leaves some of the teaching aspects out, I guess is what I would say. And uh, that's probably the general truth for me. So the good news is here at our church, I get Wednesdays where I get a chance to to teach the Bible somewhat a little more unfiltered, if you will, because I'm not really worried about necessarily getting to application. And, and uh, you know, Augustine used to say, you're supposed to move people. You're supposed to inspire people in your preaching. And uh, mm. But in your teaching, it's more informational. It'll have an inspirational aspect. You know, sometimes you go to a, a teaching and preaching breaks out, you know. I mean, I, I, just, I know that happens, but um, <laughs> but I'd say Sunday morning for me is primarily a preaching event, and so I try to at least connect what I've learned and do some teaching. But but there's always a tension there, and so there's more left on the teaching table, if you will, most every week. So mm. one of the reasons I like having this podcast now that we can at least talk a little bit about it all, you know. I mean, just like these apostles, these were different people. You do have Simon the Zealot, who was an apostle. Well, okay. Well, what does he bring to the table? You know, you also, you know, you've got kind of this fiery spirit in Peter, so mm-hmm. which um, I think he and Simon probably would have had some connections, you know. But then you've got, you know, um, people who are bent a little differently. Um, who are these apostles and what are their expectations? What have they been taught in their home synagogues when they were growing up about how this was going to play out and what were their conversations like? That's kind of the the interesting um, thing that's happening in The Chosen when you watch it. You know, mm. the, um, Dallas Jenkins is trying to bring out kind of these characters, you know. For, so you've got James the Less. Well, what does James the Less even mean? You know, well, some people think it means he was just younger. You know, he was, mm. he was just a younger person. Some people think, well, no, you're distinguishing him from James, <laughs> you know, mm. the, <laughs> the inner circle James. Dallas Jenkins' take on take on that is is he's a little smaller of stature, you know, and he even has a physical disability. So he's wow. now created a tension in the storyline of the chosen with a guy who's sent out by Jesus to heal the sick. And there's this little famous if if you've watched the chosen in and I think it's in season three, there's this encounter with James the less who. He actually has um, cerebral palsy. No, no, he has he has multiple sclerosis in real life. I'm sorry, MS. So he has he's diminutive. He has a little bit of um, just physical handicap disability. Well, he's having this conversation with Jesus and saying, "So you, so you want me to go out and heal?" 
Mm. And and people <laughs> are going to look at me, and you've not healed me. You know, so um, instead of me being able to give the testimony, well, let me tell you what I used to be, and look at what Jesus has done for me. You've left me. Mm-hmm. So Jesus talks about. Uh, he says it's in the this is in the chosen, not in the Bible, but you know where Jesus says to him, well, you know, James, um, I'm trusting you with a deeper truth that you'll be able to share. That sometimes the healing, in fact, the healing I came to give, mm. is not primarily physical. So they won't be as captivated by it when they see you, because you have bought in, you know, and yet you didn't get what you wanted. Mm-hmm. So. Now, did any of that happen? We have no idea. I mean, it's something been it's written into a TV show. But what I like about it is, is that it it creates a little bit of curiosity for all of us to think about these. These are real people, mm-hmm. real questions, real issues. You know, what about Peter being married? What was that like for him to leave his family and go mm-hmm. travel? Um, how how did that play in? How often did he go back home? And you know, when did his wife join him? I mean, the kinds of things we would all be interested in if we were living it, mm-hmm. you know, and how did Jesus address all that? So, you know, those kinds of things that you look into as a curious student and teacher, mm-hmm. you just don't always bring up on Sunday morning, you know. Sure. <laughs> so kind of a long answer for you leave a lot on the table, but it creates a rich depository mm-hmm. you know, in you, um, as you know, so that when you're called upon sometimes— you know, to do something, you you just have this treasure of knowledge of just mm-hmm. years of researching and and contemplating and and trying to understand all this that can come out with the spirit's guidance sometimes in mm-hmm. ways that you didn't plan. So that's good. Yeah. Anyway, the apostles, this group that they're listening to, mm-hmm. and this is what the chosen I think does well in helping us realize these are people who actually live with Jesus. Right. On Sunday morning, sitting next to. My eight-year-old Beckham, <laughs> I'm saying, do you know what an apostle is? Mm-hmm. We're talking about, well, apostles are people who live with Jesus. Mm-hmm. They knew him, mm-hmm. and they, Jesus taught them. And so I said, so in Acts, that's who they're listening to. Mm-hmm. They're hanging on, like you expressed in your sermon, they're hanging on every word mm-hmm. that this group of people are saying. And I expressed it to Beckham by saying, so if you wanted to know more about granddaddy, who's my dad, mm-hmm. I said, who would you go to? Would you go talk to me or would you talk to mom? And he's like, well, you. And I said, why? And he's like, you lived with granddaddy. Mm-hmm. I said, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I lived with him. I know him. Mm-hmm. I can tell you stories about him. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's the same sense that I get of what's happening in, happening in Acts mm-hmm. too. They're going to the source. What was he like? Mm-hmm. What would he have said about this or that you said you would have worn him out? I would have worn him out, I'm afraid. <laughs> because you think about it, what a what a dynamic. And I would I would say the good news is, uh, as I tried to explain Sunday morning, we still have that. We've mm-hmm. got Matthew and uh we've got John. These are two apostles. Um, I mean, my goodness, how much material has John written in the New Testament? And then you've got Luke, who's very closely connected with Paul, who eventually will refer to himself as an apostle, who has an encounter with Jesus, and evidently some type of personal relationship with Jesus, we believe, you know, during his early calling to ministry. Well, Luke is his companion, so I'm I'm grateful that um, that Paul allowed Luke to have that kind of insight uh, in his life, and um, and then you have Mark, who was very connected associated historically, traditionally with Simon Peter. And then you have the mm-hmm. writings of Simon Peter. And you got James, the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, these, these 
um, these texts in the New Testament, these are apostolic witnesses. These are these are eyewitness accounts. If you, these are first generation people. And so we should hang on every word as well, you know, today. So when I'm wondering about what Jesus, you know, I, I, I always encourage when I'm speaking to our high school kids sometimes, I always tell them, you know, everybody gets caught up in this question, what would Jesus do, the WWJD phenomenon? And I always tell them, well, what I would encourage y'all to do first is answer the question, what did Jesus do? Before you start wondering, what would he do? Mm. You know, you need to answer the question, what did he do? And so when I was in seminary, Ryan, one of our professors, Dr. McGorman, he used to tell us all the time, if you're going to go into the preaching ministry and the teaching ministry, or if you're going to serve the church as a minister, you should always be reading the Gospels. He mm. said, because you should always be focused on what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Why did Jesus do that? How did Jesus approach this? How did Jesus treat people? How did Jesus resolve conflict? How did Jesus address theological issues? How did Jesus lead us into change? And so I, I took that advice, and um, I mean, I read the Scripture, and um, I was reading the Scripture this morning, reading the book of Acts, um, but I'm always reading the Gospels. You know, right now I'm going through the Gospel of Mark, um, just, just for my own benefits, one of my um, uh, one of my favorite books to read is So Quick Hitting. You know, I, I appreciate Mark's kind of summary approach, if you will, to mm -hmm. things. Um, but I'll also admit, um, Dr. David Garland, who you know at Truett Seminary, has written one of the best commentaries I've ever read. Yes. Uh, and, and it's the one on the Gospel of Mark. And so I'm, I'm kind of reading them side by side right now, just in my own personal time. And um, because it, it helps me to to stay connected to Jesus, you know, and I want to know what he did. I want to know what he said. And uh, so all these years later after seminary, <clears throat> I'm still doing that, you know. And so so think about the apostles, this early church. It wasn't like they were left to their own devices. You have the Holy Spirit, obviously. But praise God, you had men and women. Now, the apostles were the were those original 12 men, you know, now we've got to discount Judas, obviously, but but they did put Matthias in place. Mm. So, and he and 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 the text said he had to be someone who's been with us this whole time. So mm. Matthias was not somebody just showed up in Jerusalem randomly. <laughs> I mean, he's been with them. We just didn't know it, you know, because we don't know everything. And um, but think about how what a rich resource the early church had you mm -hmm. know, when you actually had these men, and then there were women as well who had walked with Jesus, had lived with Jesus, had watched him every step of the way and uh you know and now they've got the presence of the spirit and the boldness and the power of the spirit that was a to me that was irreplaceable mm -hmm. in the early church you just you just had to have it and praise god they they were jews and so they had um a connection to the written word mm -hmm. they recognized the value of of the scripture already so it wasn't like that was introduced to them and so the i think the through the genius and the beauty of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, they realize some of this needs to be written down, mm. that this needs to be passed on from generation to generation. We've passed on the words of Moses, mm -hmm. as we should have, you know, and we've passed on the words of people like Isaiah, as we should have, and we've passed on the entire worship manual, the Psalms, as we should have. Well, we're, <laughs> we're now in the Messianic age. We've, we've, we've met the Messiah. His words need to be mm -hmm. recorded for us. So um, I'm grateful that they recognize the value of putting this in writing. So mm -hmm. think about what that's done, Ryan. You know, just the 
the preservation of the apostolic witness. It's literally, it's changed the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a grandiose statement, but that's just the honest truth. It's just, you, you can't tell the story of Western civilization without chronicling the history of Christianity. It's, it's yes. just changed the whole world. So anyway, pretty awesome. Several years ago, I did a um, book study with a group uh, with a book called Why I Trust the Bible by Robert Mounts. Mm-hmm. And um, Robert Mounts is also a um, Greek scholar. I was going to say, he's, he's helped us all read Greek, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he has. Yeah, that was the... So that's what attracted me to the book was mm-hmm. here's an actual Greek scholar mm-hmm. working in translations. If anybody knows all about the Bible mm-hmm. in very detailed ways, it's mm-hmm. Robert Mounts. Mm-hmm. And even he has this extraordinary faith and trust in the apostolic witness, mm-hmm. the words that they wrote down. Mm-hmm. One of the things he brings up in the book is at this time, it was common for people to take notes. Mm-hmm. And so when the apostles are putting all this, uh, Jesus's teaching and in life into writing, there's research that's going into mm-hmm. this too. Mm-hmm. They're working hard to faithfully preserve. So in a in an age where, and not just this age, it's been lots of ages, where the Bible seems to be under attack, what gives you faith mm-hmm. in the apostolic witness mm-hmm. that we hold on to? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's several things, probably first, you know, just m- my my theological conviction, obviously, you know, that I believe <laughs> is the Word of God. But I would tell you also, you know, we bring our brains to this. You know, we, we, when we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, um, the, the Bible, the New Testament in particular, has just stood the test of time. You know, it was immediately recognized as inspired material by the early church. You know, you, you, you go back and you start looking at um, some of the earliest writings of these leaders of Christianity, they make references to the writings of the apostles. Um, and even Paul's letters, you know, uh, they appeal to them, and they begin to build their theology on the teachings that the church had already embraced. And so that's one thing I would say is that the the credibility of the witness was was universally accepted across Christendom really early, which is a which is a somewhat of a miraculous story in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then here we are, all these years later, and we've done all this research, and you have, um, you know, thousands of Greek manuscripts, and and the um, the agreement of these manuscripts um, is is pretty powerful as well. You know, when you think about the way they were transcribed and copied in these. You know, with these these um, students, you know, with a with a leader, a dictator, if you will, and mm-hmm. and just just how we have been able to preserve these Greek texts and get to the best reading of them. Then I would say there's just the power of changed lives. There's the transformation that occurs with the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, yes. in, in the book of Acts, you know, Luke will say, like he did in the text we read Sunday, and the Lord added to their number daily. But also he'll say sometimes, and the word of God just spread, which. I think it's a beautiful thing. It was, it wasn't. It was his way of saying the church was spreading, but the secret was it was the word of God that was really spreading. It was this proclamation of of apostolic witness that seized the hold of people. And so, I've just seen it work. I've seen the value in it. I've seen it transform um, societies. You know, historically as a church historian, but I would also tell you, um, I've been all over the world, 
I've just seen um, its power. You know, everywhere it's proclaimed, it takes root. Mm. Um, you know, when we sing about the song about Jesus being a friend of sinners, well, he actually really is. And his message is just universal in scope. And um, so I've just seen the power of testimony. And, and to me, the trustworthiness of the scholarly research. I mean, you know, like, for example, there was a time when people thought uh, you're reading the book of Acts and you think Luke made up all these all of these officials' names and he made up some of these places that, you know, they couldn't find any archaeological corroboration. You know, no one used this term to refer to this particular person in power in Corinth. Well, guess what? Over time, as you know, over time, research has shown us actually these places really did exist and these titles really were in place. And some of these names have actually been corroborated in antiquity. Well, how about that? You know, yeah. it turns out uh, this is actually trustworthy material. And so I think there's scientific evidence for it. There's archaeological evidence for it. And there's certainly spiritual evidence for it. And there's there's theological evidence for it. And so, yeah, I just believe that uh, if you're a thinking person, you should bring that thought to the New Testament. Then compare it, you know, to other ancient documents. You know, like, for example, why, how do I know um, what – how do I know that I can trust Plato's Republic? I mean, how many copies mm. are there of Plato's Republic? I mean, what is it, like seven? I can't remember now. And they're hundreds of years removed. Well, we've got – we have copies – you know, of the of the New Testament witness that date into the early 100s, you know, maybe, mm. maybe even earlier than that, some of the texts of Mark's gospel. So it's not like you've got to wait seven, eight hundred years before you have these manuscripts. That's just not the New Testament witness. They're mm -hmm. very early, very much connected to the movement itself. Now, the reason I'm grateful we don't have the original autographs, Ryan, because I know how we are. We would worship them. If we had the original text, oh, wow. we'd be going and laying our babies on them, <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> thinking that something magic was going to happen. That, that's just how we We can't help ourselves, you know. I think there's a reason we don't have them, but we have copies of copies of copies, and they're very early, and it's the it's the witness. This, that's where the power is. It's not the text itself. You know, we don't worship the Bible. We're We're not— we're not Biblians. We're Christians. You know, we worship <laughs> Christ, but the Word of God points us to Him, and it's trustworthy. And um, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I have full confidence. And then I would tell you, when it comes to just in general, probably the one of the greatest um, scientific discoveries of the 20th century would be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. And you think about how that catapulted biblical scholarship to a whole nother level, and um, and so you had manuscripts the Masoretes provided for us that date to about A.D. 1000, give or take, Hebrew manuscripts. So think about how far you are removed from the Hebrew Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you uncover this treasure trove of Hebrew manuscripts that are a thousand years older than what you currently have. Can you imagine? A thousand years older. And so one of the first questions was, well, okay. How much discrepancy is there? My goodness, we've skipped a thousand years in textual evidence. Well, lo and behold, they're like ninety-nine point whatever. I forgot the percentage now. Um, uh, exactly the same. That's incredible. It really is. It just the, the preservation of all this is it, it's it's almost like um, you kind of just have to believe it. Now you, you, you now you can do with it what you will. You know, <laughs> you basically just have to believe that these texts have been preserved for us in the in the, in the best way possible. And then the power that is um, that is on display through the proclamation of the gospel is um, it's evident as well. So, 
All signs point that direction, in my opinion. So <laughs> That's terrific. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. In your sermon, you emphasized the importance of becoming, right. discipleship being a lifelong endeavor, mm -hmm. something that is only completed in glorification. Correct. That's not every Christian tradition, the That's Wesleyan right. tradition, mm -hmm. uh, John Wesley <clears throat> and others believed in some idea of Christian perfectionism or complete sanctification. Mm -hmm. What's the Baptist response to those ideas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you, you, you have this idea mainly attributed to Wesley, where he had this experience with God that he didn't know what to call it, you know. Um, and so he ended up referring to it as a second blessing. So almost like on the one hand, he he would have considered himself a Christian, but then he had this other kind of bonus experience, if you want to call it that. Well, what does that mean? What does he mean by a second blessing, kind of a, a, a more intense manifestation of the Spirit of God in him? Well, that has led to a lot of theological <laughs> debate <laughs> and uh, his— the, the followers of Wesleyan tradition, um, you know, they've branched now. They've, they've separated into numerous movements, you know, the holiness movement or the assemblies of God or the church of God, um, or the Nazarenes. All, all of those are, we, are the, actually the Wesleyan church, but it's, it's the Methodist church is, is the largest expression, or at least historically it was. Now the assembly of God has outrun everybody. So, mm -hmm. um, but the idea of, uh, perfectionism is rooted in that second blessing that you know you can become a Christian, become a believer, live your life, but at some point you have this next encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now there are our charismatic brothers and sisters call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we as Baptists would say, mm, actually we believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at salvation. In Romans 8, Paul says you have the Spirit of Christ. So when you're saved, according to our understanding, you get all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. You know, there's <laughs> not going to be another dose poured out, you know, uh, at some point in your life. Now, you may yield to the Holy Spirit differently over time, but you don't get more of Him. You, you get everything you're going to get. You meet the full Trinity at salvation. Mm. God the Father has drawn you. God the Son has made the path possible. God the Spirit has convicted you of sin and seals you into the family of God. All that happens at salvation. So you're saved, you're sanctified, you're redeemed, you're seated in the heavenly places in Christ, you're forgiven for who you are, not just what you've done, you're forgiven for who you are. So in a sense, you're cleansed because you've been completely forgiven by Christ. Absolutely. However, you still deal with your own sinfulness, you know? Mm. And so what I would say our response is that um, even though we have the presence of the Holy Spirit fully at salvation. We now are on a lifetime journey of being conformed to the image of His Son. Mm. And so um, the second blessing idea to me, I just disagree with it theologically. I don't find any evidence of it in the New Testament. You know, um, it, it was an, a personal encounter that Wesley had that he wrote a lot about, and obviously it was very meaningful to him, and I'm fine with that. But I don't believe it introduces you to kind of this next level Christianity that now you're able to live above sin. You mm. know, um, that's to me is just that is not consistent with the rest of the teaching of the scripture. I think you I think you you are forgiven for who you are. 
at salvation, you'll spend the rest of your life asking the Lord to forgive you of things that you've done. Mm. To me, those are two different things. Um, you're justified, absolutely. Cleansed, yes. Redeemed, completely at salvation. But you're a work in progress. That's why we chose that word, becoming. So you think about it. Another way to look at it, Ryan, the way that I think we've tried to look at it here, um, we also say that we're glorifying God by following the Jesus way. Mm -hmm. And to us, that's a theological summary, that God has designed us to bear his image and reflect his glory in this world. We believe that's the essence of humanity. That's what it means to be a human being, to bear the image of God, reflect the glory of God. The problem is we're all sinners. And so we are not able to do that adequately. There's a, there's a brokenness in us. Now, I don't believe that the image of God is so marred in you that there's no evidence of it. Okay. I believe it's there in every human being. There's a certain dignity in humanity that exists all over the world. Like I said, I've been all over the world. Human beings are different than the rest of the animal kingdom everywhere in the world. There's just something different about humanity. Well, what is it? What's the image of God? Now, is it, is it um, damaged because of sinfulness? Well, of course it is. But is it completely marred to the point that it's non-existent? Well, no. It's still present in, human, in humanity. That's why non-Christians do good things. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's evidence of the image of God. But we're also supposed to reflect the glory of God. That's what the book of Isaiah says. God says, my people whom I've designed for my glory. Well, what's the glory of God? Well, you go back to Exodus 34. Moses has this. Moses says, show me your glory. And God's pretty much like, well, you can't. You can't take it, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll pass by you, and you'll get a taste of it. And so when that happens to Moses, well, you, the Lord proclaims things like this. Uh, I'm reading Exodus 34. The Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. That's the glory of God. That's what's supposed to be reflected in my life. Mm. Well, guess what? The Bible says later in the New Testament, that we've all sinned, Romans, Paul says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, mm -hmm. Romans 3.23. Well, true. I mean, in other words, the glory of God is not on display in you or in me as it should be. Um, so something needs to happen to me. And so Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians, that we're, we accept Christ, we become followers of Jesus, and now here's what happens. He starts restoring glory in us. You know, he starts leading us to where more of God's glory is on display in us. Well, so that means when I look at my life, why, for example, Exodus 34, the Lord's compassion. Why am I not always compassionate? Mm. I mean, the Lord is. That's his glory. Um, why? And he's gracious. Why am I not always gracious? He's slow to anger. Why am I not always slow to anger? Um He's abounding in love. Why am I not always abounding in love? He's abounding in faithfulness. Why am I not always abounding in faithfulness? Um, he forgives wickedness. Well, I don't always forgive. He, um, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, he's righteous in the way he judges, if you will. Well, I'm not always righteous. I can judge with the best of them, and I don't have to be righteous in it. Well, those are just signs that the glory of God in me is not what it should be. But guess what? As I watch myself, I see God working in my life, and I watch me growing in these areas where I find myself being more compassionate maybe than I was, having deeper love than maybe I used to have, mm. learning how to better forgive than I was able to forgive in the past, learning how to hold things in tension when I've got to hold people accountable and yet 
not be so completely judgmental that I just discount them out of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, those kinds of things are expressions of the glory of God that over time are becoming more evident in my life. Well, that's an indicator that I'm walking with the Lord. You know, and from a New Testament perspective, you can look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It says similar things to me. I would say that the fruit of the Spirit to me are characteristics of the glory of God. It's what the Spirit's producing in me. So I can I can ask myself, are these things on display in me? You mm. know, and if they are, what what I like to do is I will pause, you know, I don't know, maybe yearly. It usually happens for me yearly, but it depends. And I'll ask myself, I'll just kind of do a checkup. I'll go through this passage in Exodus 34. I'll go through Galatians 5 mm-hmm. and evaluate myself. Am I better right now than this time last year? Mm. What, what am I struggling? Am I still struggling today with what I was struggling with a year ago? Okay. Well, that's evidence to me that I've got room for growth. So the idea of becoming speaks to that, in my opinion. You know, haven't arrived. I don't believe I ever will. Um, but I think there's evidence, the ways for me to actually look. It's not just totally subjective. There's some mm-hmm. objectivity to it. And and you can even invite people into your life that you know and love and respect to help you with that process. Mm-hmm. I've done that, you know, where we'll stop sometimes. Um, you know, I've been on a long, long spiritual journey with Cindy, and we're able to have those kind of conversations, you know. And do you see this as better in me? My goodness, you know, five years ago, you know how to respond to this five years ago? And now look, well, that's the mm-hmm. evidence of the spirit of God at work in my life, you know, so. That's very helpful. So. So you believe that people can change. Absolutely. There's a, so the kids musical uh, Frozen, Mm -hmm. my kids love the music. We listen to it nearly every day. (laughs) If you were at our uh, open house uh, a few weekends ago, Elsa and Anna were there. Mm. I love all the music, too. Mm-hmm. There's one song I don't like, and I don't let my kids listen to it because it expresses this idea that people are who they are, and mm-hmm. that's all they're ever going to be. It's a mm-hmm. song called Fixer Upper, and the characters are talking about how you can be in a relationship with this person, and they're not perfect. They're a little bit of a fixer upper. But then one of the characters sings, you can't really change him because people don't really change. Mm. I don't like that line. Mm -hmm. I don't want my kids to hear that line. Christianity offers us, in my opinion, real transformation Mm -hmm. and real change. In fact, some people will say that the call to discipleship is the call to change. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate Mm -hmm. with you in any kind of way? Absolutely. I mean, if I didn't believe... People could change. Well, I I would just go do something else with my life, (laughs) you know, because uh, that is the essence to me of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's a calling to transformation. And um, he has changed me. I've seen him change so many people across the course of my ministry. And I think people sometimes get confused about Jesus Because they will look at the New Testament and they will say, well, Jesus just accepted everybody. Why are you so judgmental? Mm. Jesus didn't condemn people. I mean, the woman caught in adultery, he didn't condemn her, you know. And so when I hear those kinds of things, what I realize is that's a very shallow, um, immature approach to the Scripture Mm. and to the person of Jesus. Jesus was an accepting person. My goodness, everybody wanted to talk to him. 
Um, I love that, you know, um, everywhere he went, there were crowds everywhere, you know. Um, and he even said one time, you know, John the Baptist came playing the funeral song. Well, you didn't like that. The Son of Man <laughs> came eating and drinking. Well, you don't like that. In other words, he he had a, a, a magnetism to him. Absolutely. But he didn't just leave people. He accepted them, but he didn't leave them. Mm. You know, you, you tell the story of the woman at the well, okay. I mean, I mean, the woman caught in adultery. Didn't condemn her. But you get to the end of that story, and he looks at her, and he says, now go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. In other words, go, go change your life. You know, tell the rich young ruler, okay, I'm proud of you. Absolutely. Look at you. Why don't you go sell everything, give it away, come back and follow me? Well, you know, he met Matthew. He said to Matthew, sitting there at that successful Jewish man, helping to run the tax collecting business. Obviously, he was a person of high intelligence. They would have, they would, would not have trusted him to do that kind of job, you know, in the ancient world. The Romans would have never done that. And Jesus didn't leave him. Jesus looked at him and said, "Come with me." Mm. And um, that's that's what Jesus does. He leads us to better places. He does not leave us where we are. And so to say that Jesus accepted everybody and so should we, that's a true statement as far as it goes. But what an incomplete understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he offers humanity. Yes. You know, so the whole story of the gospel, the power of it in our lives is a journey of transformation. Absolutely. And um, now, that doesn't mean it's easy, but but it's possible. Um, you know, God sent Jeremiah down to the potter's house, remember, and said, I want you to go and I want you to watch what happens. Well, that potter takes that clay and turns it into something incredible, you know. But if you remember that particular time, the clay had a hard spot in it and it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't give, you know. And the potter, you know, finally had to just take it off the wheel and turn it into something else. And God was sending a message to Israel, you know, you're not like the clay. You're not just lying there without any kind of responsibility here. But there's hope in that. If you've got a hard spot in your life, well, yield to the potter. You know, mm. that's where you're different than clay. Yield to the potter, you know, and you do that and he can change it. And he can get rid of that hard spot and turn you into something beautiful. I mean, the, the, the whole message of the Bible is, to me is a message about progress and change and transformation and hope. And uh, yeah, praise God. Look, I mean, my goodness, I know so many people, Ryan, through the years in my life, I've watched them. They're just completely different people after following Jesus, you know? So now you might say, well, okay, I get that. But, you know, certain people have certain maybe um, things that have influenced them because of how they were reared, certain experiences that have shaped them. Well, I get all that. There's a human dynamic here, but there's a spiritual force, a power that can overcome all of that and bring healing and hope to people's lives. And so I'm a hundred percent believer in the transforming work of the gospel and grateful for it. And it's what we offer people. You know, you don't have to stay where you are. Mm. And for those that want to stay where you are, we have to tell them you can't stay where you are. <laughs> you know, for those that want to change, we can say you can. For those who don't want to, we have to say, well, actually you have to. <laughs> so yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a double edged sword. So I think anyway. we're, I think we're hitting on something too, that, young adult minister, but something certainly that um, goes beyond younger generations, millennials or Gen Z, but I really believe that the atheism or agnosticism or the, well, I'm, I like 
some of the teachings of Christianity, but I don't believe in a personal God. I really think a lot of these uh, rejections of God go back to the fact that I just don't want to change. Because if I start to say there is a God who's a creator, who's orderly, who is the source of everything that exists today, that has a purpose for everything he created, suddenly that has a bearing on my life mm -hmm. and my responsibility as a human being, the way I treat other people. I think that's, I think that's the root of a lot of people's rejection of mm -hmm. just church and mm -hmm. organized religion. Because mm -hmm. as soon as I admit it, mm -hmm. I have to change. Mm -hmm. I have to come to some kind of idea or some kind of accept, acceptance that the Lord has purpose for me, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's trying to form me into something. Mm -hmm. People, especially us American, mm -hmm. our, our Western mm -hmm. Christian, mm -hmm. Christians and just people, we don't like that. That's we right. want to be individualistic. Mm -hmm. We want to do whatever we want to do. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it's an essential part of, of Christianity. Mm -hmm. It is, and I think you're exactly right. I think the... The desire to be the master of your own destiny, um, you know, just in complete control of your life. You're right. If you have to acknowledge that actually, you know, there is a God who designed you, and um, and submit yourself to His authority. That's a, that can be a hard thing to do. Um, but I I would encourage anybody listening who's struggling with that. He's worthy of it. Hmm. He really is. You can trust him. Um, and he, what he offers you, me, all of us is so much better, richer, deeper, more lasting than anything we would ever discover on our own. Mm. And, um, I've seen enough dead ends in my life, uh, with people to recognize that there's, um, there's, there's hope in this right here. And, uh, and it's real, it's power. It's not manufactured. It's powerful. And, um, and I'm grateful that God has chosen to orchestrate it that way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm grateful there's some mystery to it. I, I think that creates the intrigue. It satisfies the curiosity in all of us. And uh, But there's enough evidence, though, and enough real power and enough encounters that uh, it's, it's got an experiential side to it that Christianity is real. And, I'm, I'm, and I've seen the Lord change so many people, myself included. You know, I would also tell you, um, because I believe in all that, that's why I never give up. Wow. I never give up. Sometimes I'll talk to parents and they'll tell me what their adult children are doing or their, you know, wayward children might be doing. And I always tell them, I, I get it. I know it's hard. But the last chapter hasn't been written. Mm. So just hang in there. You know, keep praying. Keep being faithful. We'll give God a chance. He's powerful, you know, and his love is a force. It's, it's the most powerful force on planet is the power of love, particularly love from the Christian God. It says there's nothing else like it. I mean, right now, Vladimir Putin is trying to get all the power he can get. It's so misplaced. Mm -hmm. It's just so misplaced. What he has is fleeting, and um, and if he does what he's doing, it'll die with him. Mm. The power and the force of the love of God, dude, unstoppable and but eternal. <clears throat> That's awesome. <laughs> Listeners, 
God loves you. Mm-hmm. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose for your life. Amen. He wants you to become like him because he's perfect mm-hmm. and he's holy and he knows he knows it's exactly what you need. Mm-hmm. Amen. The truth Amen. that we speak at the church, it's truth spoken in love. We do it because it may be uncomfortable, but it's truth that can be transformative. Amen. Amen. What a good way to end. Thank Ryan, you. Ryan, good job. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Wiles. <laughs> this was uh, this was fun. And uh, so, listeners, uh, just a quick recap of everything that we've talked about in here. We talked about um, a little bit of sermon writing and what we leave out. We talked about uh, uh, apostleship and the relationship the church has to the apostolic witness, how important that is. Dr. Wiles shared some of his thoughts on why he trusts the Bible, too. So if you're wondering, why should I read this 2,000, 5,000-something-year-old book, um, give a listen to that section. And then we also talked about just becoming. What does it look like for the Lord to transform us, mold us, and shape us into something better than we could imagine for ourselves? So... Um, wide range of conversation here. But uh, join us on uh, Sunday as we continue our series over the church and why it matters. Thank you, Dr. Wiles. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.